Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com national content editor. On today's show, we actually have some pretty sizable moves to talk about. The White Sox are going for it. They have signed Liam Hendricks to a big deal. He's the best closer in baseball. You may have heard that the Mets traded for Carlos Carrasco and also Francisco Lindor. Kyle Schwarber is a national. We're going to try to figure out what is up with all the Andrew Benintendi trade rumors and each, as usual, dig into a free agent you should know more about and finish off with some rants. Matt, I want to start quickly with something that is just the most vaguely baseball-related thing I could possibly come up with. Here in New York, as you've probably heard, they're going to start using City Field, the home of the Mets, as a 24-7 COVID vaccine center. And in a couple of weeks or months or whenever low-risk people like you and I are eligible, I was thinking, what if we went at like three o'clock in the morning just to say we did and then did a live podcast from, you know, cars across from one each other in the in the parking lot? It's sort of baseball related. And um, I think like 10 years from now, we look back and go, hey, that's that's how we ended that insane chapter in our lives. Uh, I'm I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> I say that without asking our producer Dan. By the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, you know, just to point out also that um, uh, New York Mayor Bill De Blasio said they're working with Yankee Stadium as well. That's supposedly going to be up and running as well. There's a few other major league ballparks that are going to be mass vaccina- vaccination sites. So, as people connected with baseball, I'm excited that like baseball is playing a role in um, getting people vaccinated and trying to get us back to, you know, some sense of normalcy. Did you see the thing on Twitter? I, I saw someone posted it of like um, the Terry Collins rant from a couple of years ago that got picked up by the hot mic where he's yelling at the ump and he's like, he's yelling at the ump. He's like, you got to give us our shot. You got to give us our shot. <laughs> and someone like took the audio and was like <laughs> people rolling into city field to get their COVID vaccine. No, I didn't see it, but I, I do remember that was the one that ended up uh, being the jackpot. As I, as yeah, I you're, you're exactly. Yes. Well, thank you for pointing that out. So, since you actually need two different doses, maybe you know we can hit up City Field the first time and then Yankee the second time. Ooh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, listen, it's it's vaguely baseball related and hopefully good news that will obviously you know affect baseball if, if we want to get fans back. We want the season to go on. That's a huge thing. But the offseason has not, you know, gotten started necessarily in the way people hoped it would. It's been excruciatingly slow. And then over the last week or so, things have happened. Obviously, the Mets traded for Lindor, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I kind of wanted to start with the the fresher move, which was record, uh, reported, I guess, overnight, you know, not last night, but the night before from our point of view. The White Sox, who were already a, you know, big, uh, big team of the winter because they traded for Lance Lynn and signed Adam Eaton, went and signed... Liam Hendricks, who ended their season in October, by the way, the last three outs of the White Sox season came at the hands of Liam Hendricks strikeouts. And he is, in my opinion, the best reliever in baseball right now, which is a wild thing to say about a guy who got DFA'd by the A's as recently as 2018. Um, He has over the last two years, I I like him because he's a really good combination of quality and quantity, right? So over the last two years, over 2019 and 2020, he has thrown the most innings of any reliever in baseball, aside from guys who play for the Rays, because obviously, you know, the guys following the opener kind of screws everything up. So he's thrown the most innings of anybody, 108 and one third. And at the same time, no reliever has had a lower weighted on base average than 219. Weighted on base is kind of like on base percentage. It just gives more credit for extra base hits. So he throws the most innings. He's been the most effective guy. And you know, he does it with a fastball that he has learned to throw a ton to get ahead of the count before going towards spin. And I think he was a guy that 
pretty much any contending team would have liked. Like he would have fit the Dodgers. He would have fit the Mets, certainly. Like I'm not sure there's a team that wants to win that he wouldn't have fit. I was a little surprised it ended up being the White Sox. Like they were not the team I would have guessed. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering where you thought he was going to go. Well, first off, I want to say that I'm, I'm glad you've come along, come around on Liam Hendricks is the best believer in baseball. Because oh, did I, I hate him? What? <laughs> no, but I've been steadfast in this take um, since the summer. And you know, you you had your dalliance with Nick Anderson, who's obviously in the conversation. <laughs> but I've been pretty steadfast. You know, we we had a conversation about like who's the best believer in baseball and how that changes so quickly because it's really hard to have a combination of like track record and dominance because a lot of pit relief pitchers just kind of burn out or lose their effectiveness. Like, you know, kind of Josh Hader went from being like totally unhittable to being just like good. And while like this year, Devin Williams was probably the best this year, he didn't really have the track record. Back to your original question. Yeah. I mean, I, I sort of thought that if there was the, the team I had in mind for Hendricks from the beginning of the offseason was the Phillies because they just desperately need um, bullpen help. And uh, he was, you know, the best guy out there. The Phillies have shown a willingness to, you know, go after big free agents. So it felt like that felt like a match. But, you know, kudos to the White Sox, right? They're a team that's kind of in that position of between good and great. And they're making moves this offseason to kind of get into that great tier. And adding Hendricks to what was already kind of an interesting bullpen makes it like a really good bullpen. Yeah, it really does. The Fangraphs projections right now have them with Hendricks as the second best bullpen in baseball, they were already pretty good last year. You know, if you look at them in 2020, they had the the seventh best bullpen ERA and the seventh best, seventh lowest bullpen on base percentage and the seventh highest fastball velocity and the fifth best weighted on base. And I think I think there were maybe a few fans who think that this isn't necessarily a an upgrade over Alex Colomay and that it's kind of a lateral move because Colomay had a 0.81 ERA last year. Now that's wildly misleading. He, you know, his strikeout rate has been collapsing for years and was actually below league average. And he is a good reliever. And I consider Hendricks a, a great reliever. But as I, as I wrote about yesterday, the White Sox have all these guys in the bullpen and people don't know their names, but they're all really interesting. Like Aaron Bummer is essentially Zach Britton in terms of strikeout rate. Uh, Garrett Crochet is maybe already the hardest throwing pitcher in baseball, you know, topping uh, 100 miles an hour like 45 times despite not coming up until the last week of the season. Uh, Cody Hoyer had one of the four lowest weighted on base averages allowed last year. It, It was Williams, Devin Williams, Liam Hendricks, Jake Diekman, Cody Hoyer. I don't think he's the fourth best reliever, but you get the idea. Um, Evan Marshall has started throwing his change up like 40% of the time. That's really good. Matt Foster is interesting. And obviously they'd already added Lance Lynn to the rotation. And I, I sort of joked about this on Twitter here too. You know, they're going to be better this year on the pitching side simply because Lance Lynn, they didn't have a third starter really, right? And Lance Lynn is a very good one. And Colome was fine, but Hendricks is better. And I think, you know, Tony Larusa, their new manager, is going to get a lot of credit for you know, maybe making better moves because it's not like their former manager, Rick Renteria, just received a lot of high praise. But I also don't think he had these guys. Like if he had Lance Lynn to start in game three, he would have done it and not tried to piece together a bullpen game. Like I'm just kind of like trying to get ahead of the fact that we're going to see credit going to the manager when it's also like, well, the players are better. Like <laughs> that's a big deal to me. Um, I also wonder if the White Sox are the best team in the American League now. Is it's not too soon to think about it. I think White Sox fans are maybe offended the Twins are still in the conversation because the Twins haven't done very much, but I think they are. I think they're very good. I think the Yankees are still in the conversation, but is there anyone you are confidently putting ahead of the White Sox right now? I think if the Yankees bring back DJ LeMahieu, I probably would, 
But um, and that's kind of I think what you know with this applies to the Yankees and the Twins of like they're gonna do something like based on current rosters. I think I'd take the um, the White Sox, but like the Yankees are, are going to do something. I think they will bring back Flamehu. Um, the Twins will do something. I think they will end up getting, bringing back Nelson Cruz. We shall, you know, it remains to be seen a little bit, but like that, that obviously changes the the equation. What I do think about the the White Sox, where they stand apart, is because of like the youth on their team. They sort of have like a sneaky kind of like juggernaut potential, where they have like a lot of players who could like take like a real leap and make them like you know take them to another level. Now, granted, I don't expect Jose Abreu to be as good as he was last year in sixty games and win MVP, but you have Yuan Moncada, Luis Robert, uh, Eloy Jimenez specifically, who are all like age 25, 26 or younger, who could be like, I wouldn't be shocked if we're like MVP, MVP caliber players next year. Then you also have like Michael Kopech coming back at the back of the rotation and could be like, you know, he's probably not going to give you a lot of innings, but like there's a huge X factor of someone who like, it wouldn't shock me if he came in and was like really good in, in small doses um, at the back of the rotation. So that's why I think that the the White Sox are kind of like the most intriguing because they there's like a little bit of like oh this could they could find this if a few players find this new level they are the best team in baseball or in the, in the American League in the American League I should say yes yes I mean I'm extremely interested to see what Yuan Moncada does because in 2019 he had what looked like a real legitimate sustainable breakout and the 2020 you know it took a big step back but he he had contracted COVID and was pretty open about the fact that that it affected him. And, you know, we're only a year into this mess and we don't really know the long-term effects. So I'll be fascinated and obviously very hopeful that he can bounce back and be the guy he was because that would that would be a big deal. For the record, um, going back to Hendricks for a second. So we are doing uh, at MLB Network, uh, myself and Sarah Langs and Vince Gennaro, we're doing our top 10 lists for every position as we do every year. And the other night, relief pitchers aired. And I did have Liam Hendricks number one. Uh, that is why I'm calling him the best pitcher in baseball. I had him ahead of Nick Anderson too. Devin Williams, three, uh, Hader, four, and Pomerantz, five. So I don't actively remember dumping on Liam Hendricks. As a I, never said, I never said you dumped on him. All I'm saying <laughs> is that I was dead fast at number one, and you were sort of like, oh, well, I think maybe Nick Anderson. That's all I'm saying. I never said you were like, you know, dumping on Hendricks, to be clear. Yeah, it's a, by the way, it's an interesting contract for Hendricks. Three years and $54 million guaranteed, but that is including a fourth year, which, you know, the White Sox don't actually need to pay him any more money for the fourth year because it's, it's, I don't think I've ever seen a baseball contract structured like this before, right? Where like the fourth year option and the fourth year buyout are the exact same thing. So they are paying him $54 million regardless of whether they want him for three years or four years, which is really interesting. The other thing that popped out to well, me I mean, was I, I just want to I want to like go actually I was going to bring that up as well. I just want to like specify it a little more. So basically, the way as I understand it, it's three. It, basically, it's thirteen million a year for the first three years. So th- three for thirty nine, and then the fourth year option is worth fifteen million, right? But if they pick it up, they will pay him fifteen million for that fourth year. If they do not pick it up, they will pay him one point five million per year for the following ten years. So basically, right. just like, so right. like, which I, again, to, to stress your point, it's really, I, when I saw that, I was like, oh, is this going to be like sort of the new trend of kind of like teams sort of like hedging with those options where like, we'll give you the guaranteed money. It's just, it's going to, it's going to be deferred if like, if you, if you stink and we don't want to pick it up, <laughs> we're just going to defer the money. It's a, it seems like an interesting kind of, I don't want to say win-win, but like, it's definitely a, a nice, uh, interesting uh, alternative to, uh, to the typical contracts we've seen. Right. And then, you know, with deferrals, you get into the whole thing about the time value of money and how much does a, a dollar now differ from a dollar in the future. And that's that's more than we're going to get into here. But it's fascinating. The other thing that stood out to me was when you look at the, the, the 
predictions. Like so Fangraphs does this, they they pull the, the readership and then MLB Trade Rumors does it on their own. Both of those sites came in pretty similar. Trade Rumors had had him down for three years and 30 million. And the Fangraphs readers, their median was three years and 36 million. Well, this is three for 54. So he kind of blew that away. And that is, is interesting to me because if you look at this offseason, all anybody can talk about is how slow it is, right? Like the top guys haven't signed Springer, Bauer, and LeMahieu, and Romuto, and Ozuna, and Michael Brantley. Like very few guys have actually signed, but the ones who have have actually done really well. And so I looked this up this morning. And there were 15 free agents who have signed this year who have had, who had before the, the winter started a prediction of their contracts at either Fangraphs or MLB trade rumors, right? So if they had a prediction just at one, I took that. If they had a prediction at both, I just averaged the two of them. You take those 15 guys, you know, including Hendricks and McCann and Miner and down to some one-year deals like Waka and Zunino, that group signed for a total of $250 million. So it's an average of 1.9 years on the contract, an average of $8.2 million per year of average annual value, right? $250 million total. The predictions for that group were $190 million, an average annual value of $7.1 million per year. So this group of 15 has overperformed the predictions by $60 million total and about a $1 million per year of average annual value. This is obviously like a small sample size. As soon as Springer signs or Bauer, like everything's going to get skewed again. But I, you know, Hendricks got more than I thought he would. James McCann definitely got more than I thought he would. And it's it's hard to maybe wrap your head around how a winter can be so slow yet also well paid for the guys who've been paid. Like maybe, maybe we should have seen this coming from day one. Cause one of the first guys who signed was Drew Smiley, who got one year and $11 million despite charitably an inconsistent track record. Well, I think this is right. This is where sequencing matters, right? Like anyone who's ever done like a, a fantasy baseball auction knows, right? I could go into my auction next year. And if I just happen to like, kind of like James McCann and like, I'm going to nominate, make him like the second player nominated. He'll probably go for like, you know, let's say, you know, it's a, you know, a standard auction, you know, he'd probably go like for like six or $7. Right. But, and I'm talking about like a mixed league auction. Right. But if you just didn't happen to nominate him till the end, he might go be available for a dollar. Right. So that's what happens a lot of times. I, I feel like if, if Ray Amoto had signed first, McCann would have gotten less, but sometimes the best offer you're going to get is upfront. And I think a lot of these players who are not like the elite free agents, you know, I think the only one who could be considered the best at their position is Hendricks, have all kind of maybe jumped at what they thought was like the best offer they were gonna get and have done pretty have done pretty well. It's gonna be interesting to see like the guys who maybe thought they were elite who are waiting, and maybe those are the ones who are gonna sign for the deals that maybe you wouldn't have thought they would get at the beginning of the offseason. Yeah, I also wonder how many starting pitchers are looking at Drew Smiley getting eleven million per year and saying that guy's done very little over the last few years. So, no disrespect to him. Like, I understand why the Braves liked him. The velocity went up at the end of the year; he looked really good. But if you are, I don't know, Jake Odorizzi or James Paxton or someone who's a little more accomplished, do um, you don't want to take less than that? And maybe that skewed the market a little bit. But I don't. I found that interesting, and I, I think I'm going to keep an eye on that as signings continue to see if this is just like a fluke or a trend because. You know, there's certainly more unsigned guys than there are guys who have signed. We are going to take a quick break. We will come back with our three batter minimum, our three interesting topics of the week. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. 
with a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication. It's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We're going to do our three batter minimum, our three most interesting topics of the week. When I heard where that the Mets were going to trade for Francisco Lindor and also Carlos Carrasco, I can tell you exactly where I was. As I just mentioned, you know, we're doing these shows at MLB Network, doing the, the top 10 lists for each position. Uh, and even though the air dates are spread out, we tape them all at once, all in one shot. And we had done like the first five positions or so, or so. you know, we take a quick break. And just about as we're about to start doing the shortstop one, we hear in our ears from the producer, oh, hey, guess what? When you talk about Lindor, sounds like he's going to be a Met now. And um, that kind of distracted the heck out of us, I can tell you that, because um, wow, I, I I can say I don't listen that much to like, you know, local terrestrial sports talk radio, right? But I did that day driving home from the studio. I was listening to WFN in New York. And I don't think the hosts and callers on that show that afternoon could have sounded more excited if the Mets actually just had won the World Series. Like people were doing radio somersaults and for good reason. Lindor is a star on and off the field. They gave up talented players we'll get into in a second, but I don't think any Mets fan is really out there like, you know, decrying the loss of Ahmed Rosario to get these two guys. I heard some people say that aside from like the days where they've won World Series in the past, this was the greatest day in Mets history. I don't know if I'm prepared to go that far, but I certainly understand why they're excited. <laughs> yeah, that, that 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 might be that might be um a bit much. You know, I I I've 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 long thought that the Mets were the best fit for Lindor in a trade just because um, I knew the Indians would want a shortstop or shortstops in this case who could fill in immediately a major league ready, major league ready shortstop who was either like, you know, pre-arbitration or their first year arbitration. And the Mets had two of them in Ahmed, Ahmed Rosario and Andres Jimenez, not to mention their number one prospect, depending on where you look, is also a shortstop, Ronnie Mauricio, and he's a couple years away. So the fact that the Mets and Indians ended up consummating this trade makes a lot of sense to me. Now, originally I would have thought that like the Indians would have insisted on getting another one of like someone who could play the outfield because the Mets also have a bunch no, of DH never. types. That'll never happen, no. The, the other reason I thought these two teams were a great match is that the Mets have a bunch of DH types who are kind of square pegs. Um, is, if you're assuming that there's no DH and, you know, J.D. Davis, Dom Smith, um, Pete Alonzo, you only have so many places for those guys without like torpedoing your defense. But somehow the Mets managed to hang on to all of them, which I think is sort of like a big win um, from from their perspective, DH, DH or not, because either they're going to be helpful in the lineup or they could also be potential trade pieces uh, this summer. I was kind of stunned that they did not get someone like that. Because, or Brendan Nimmo, you know, for that matter. 
like there's another one. Well, yeah, you don't listen. You don't trade Lindor and Carrasco if you're expecting to improve your team right now. But you also don't trade for two guys who are ready now players like with major league experience if you're looking five years down the road. You know, like they don't have Cleveland, a first baseman, really. They don't have any outfielders, really. I like Framil Reyes as, a, as the DH, right? Like Josh Naylor is possibly interesting at first base or DH. Dom Smith, who currently does not have a real spot in New York because we don't know if there's going to be a DH, would have been an amazing fit there. And they didn't get him. And I was really, I was, I was stunned by that. I will say, um, I, I get the feeling, and you know, you follow Mets fandom a little closer than I do. Mets fans were just completely and totally done with Ahmed Rosario. Like they were over him. Um, Jimenez had maybe like become the apple of their eye. And I still like Rosario to have a breakout. Like he's only, let's see here. He just turned 25 in November, right? So he's still young. I'm going to set aside 2020 because like, obviously that was a screwy season for everybody. In 2019, he was a league average hitter and his defense improved. He popped 15 home runs. Like I'm not, I'm not out on him yet. I think he's going to be like a surprisingly, not a star, but a couple of three win seasons for Rosario. Like I, I, think that can still happen. I actually think Mets fans were a little too high on Jimenez. Um, There's maybe a lot of, you know, he plays the game the right way where the bat seemed like it was pretty weak to me. Uh, but, you know, the the way I guess I would look at this is from a baseball perspective for one year of Lindor and the next couple of Carrasco, uh, Cleveland did okay, right? The, the problem is not so much in the trade they made as it was trading away Francisco Lindor in the first place as opposed to keeping him around forever because there's only so many of those guys. And now he's a Met. And it's like, is it bad for baseball that a team like Cleveland can't keep him? Yes. Is it good for baseball that Francisco Lindor is going to play in New York now? I mean, also, yes. Right. Mr. Smile, legitimately. Yeah, no, I, I agree with your, your take on Rosario. He's had a weird, but before you get back to the Met, I want to say I agree with you. He's had a weird career arc. He's like had like sort of good half season, bad half season, good half season, bad half season. Defenses look terrible. Defenses looked okay, um, both by the eye test and the metrics. So it's, I think there's still hope from him. Um, his inability to sort of control the strike zone was a real issue this year. But again, it was a weird year. And I think that there's still there's still some real, real upside there. Yeah, I mean, as for Lindor, I think it's it's great having him um, in New York for the game, broadly speaking. Obviously, he's only, he's only under contract for this year. I don't think the Mets make this deal unless they're pretty confident um, that they can, yes. they, can uh, they can lock him up to a long-term deal. And so my guess is that that will that will happen at some point. Presumably he says he doesn't want to negotiate during the season. So you have to imagine what happened before the season, because um, you don't, you also don't want to run the risk of, you know, him hitting free agency and then, you know, losing him. But I think that like, my guess is it will happen before opening day because, you know, that's kind of the whole point of the, the, um, you know, not the whole point, but like with the Mets having a new owner, who's been pretty f- straightforward about wanting to invest more in the team and raise payroll. And like this, this move itself, you know, adds like, again, you know, basically like, you know, 30 something million to payroll because the players they traded away were, you know, pre- one was pre-arb and I think one was the first year of arbitration. So it was probably an addition of um, $30 million. Of course, a big part of that is Carlos Carrasco, who's very good and a huge addition for the Mets who really needed like a, a reliable starting pitcher. And man, Carrasco was just that. I saw one Mets blogger say, I don't I don't necessarily agree with this, but I understand where he's coming from that he liked this trade so much that he would have he would have made that trade, you know, the four players that were sent back just for Carrasco. I think that's maybe a bit much. I don't think I'd go that far. But I, I do think it's like we're gonna get so caught up in calling this the Lindor trade, like we call, you know, the Mike Piazza trade and the Gary Carter trade and whatever. Um he Carrasco has been one of the ten best starters for like the last eight years now. 
right? I actually looked this up for going from 2014 to 2020, and that includes his 2019. That was kind of a, a total loss because he was battling leukemia. From 2014 to 2020, he was the 10th best starting pitcher in wins above replacement. He was really good last year. And if, like you just alluded to, you look at the Mets rotation, yeah, DeGrom, obviously, the number one ace. I like Stroman. I, I like him pretty well, but he didn't pitch last year, and he's been kind of inconsistent. He's more of like a number three guy to me. Um, and if you were going to go into a, a playoff series, like who was your third starter before this trade? David Peterson? You know, maybe Syndergaard's healthy at that point. Fine. Uh, this was a, this was a move they really needed to make. Like, I don't want to diminish the impact of Francisco Lindor, who's like a top 10 player in baseball, but the Mets really needed a starter. And if they weren't going to go sign Bauer, I don't know that they could do much better than this. Like, let me ask you this. Setting aside Bauer, do you like Carrasco better than any other free agent starting pitcher who was available? Um, yes, especially when you factor in, he's like, you know, he's on a deal, like he's, he's getting paid 12 million a year for the next two years with a mutual option for 2023 of 14 million. And I think that if he were free agent right now, he would get more than that. Um, he's not young, but he's not old. I mean, he's going to be entering his 30 age 34 season. So like, it's a totally reasonable deal for that age. And like the Mets are sort of trying to, they're trying, I think they, you know, they're, they're, they're coming up against the, the, the luxury tax threshold. My guess is they'd be willing to go over it but like they don't want to blow past it right away. So this kind of gives them some flexibility if maybe they do go sign um, Spring uh, George Springer or maybe they sign Jackie Bradley Jr. and make a trade or you know s- save some room to add salary during the season. Of course, there's also the factor of like whether or not they want to give Michael Conforto an extension and Lindor and how that plays into it. But that's kind of things you can figure out. You know, so w- The way it works out is that for competitive balance tax – the average annual value of the contract is what matters. That's so you can't do a workaround where you're like, we're going to pay him $1 million this year and then $40 million next year to like work around it. It's the average annual value. However, if the Mets signed Lindor to an extension now, but it didn't kick in until um, 2022, whatever raise he gets in 2022 wouldn't be factored into the luxury tax for this year. They would use his salary from this year. So there are ways you could probably even give an extension to um, Lindor and or Conforto under that, like, you know, framework and kind of make it work so there's a the, the carrasco in addition to being a good pitcher just gives them a lot more flexibility to work with in terms of working around the the uh, competitive balance tax when this trade happened I, I told my son who you know is five and he's starting to get into sports and he doesn't know like all the players and teams yet or anything but i told him because you know this is a, a superstar who's going to come to new york and hopefully we'll be fortunate enough to go see a game later this summer and he says to me well is he as good as mookie betts and I said, probably not, but he's really close. And I love that that is the question that you asked, because I feel like everyone should know who Mookie Betts is. <laughs> All right. There were other moves, um, not quite to the impact of Carrasco and Lindor and Hendricks, but the the Nationals did sign Kyle Schwarber. And if you watched the Nationals at all last year, you probably noticed that they had like two superstar hitters. Like Juan Soto is already a legend. Trey Turner was really, really good. And everybody else was absolutely awful. I put the numbers together. Trey Turner and Juan Soto combined had an OPS of over 1,000, 1,066. Every other Nationals hitter combined a 695 OPS. That's really bad. And that's sort of where you, yeah, get a star. That's great. But you kind of just need like competent major league hitters. And they had traded for Josh Bell before. And I don't love Josh Bell, but he'll be an upgrade, certainly. And it's kind of the same thing with Schorber, who, you know, never lived up to the, uh, the I don't know, legendary myths that Cubs fans wanted him to after that World Series in 2016, but has been, you know, a relatively above average hitter for three years before 2020. He's like 13% above average. Uh, I think he hit 38 home runs in 2019. 
not really much of a defensive outfielder. That's why he only got a one-year deal, but he's already projected to be one of the three best Nationals hitters next year. So he'll play left, Victor Robles in center, Soto in right. Um, I hope Robles is ready to catch a lot of fly balls, <laughs> like a lot of fly balls, and, and Bell at first, uh, you know, it's better. Like I, I like that in a division where the Braves have won three titles in a row, division titles, and obviously the Mets are like super going for it, that the Nationals aren't saying, well, we got no shot. And I don't think they could do that anyway, because you've got Soto and Turner and the rotation is expensive and not getting any younger, right? You know, Corbin, Strasburg and Scherzer, you you can't really like, you know, pay it forward with those guys. You're either going to win now again or you're not. I don't know if they're good enough, but I like these moves. Like they just, they need to keep doing this. They need to keep getting more guys who can be average to slightly above average major league hitters. Uh, even if I, I think, you know, Bell and Schwarber are both flawed in some way. They're both steps forward. Yeah, I think that's I think that's well put. Like both they're both players who probably their reputations for like for for, for different reasons probably out exceed their production. Schwarber because of his association with the 2016 Cubs, Bell because he had that incredible first half of the season. I think it was 2019 where like he was like the like he like just had a crazy tear for the first six weeks and you know um, he kind of came back down to earth. But they're both good hitters and they add some power and it definitely just like you look at their lineup and you look at like when you like look at their lineup as an opposition like oh this is a this is definitely now like a more formidable team you know Schwarber what's weird about him is like he's kind of this like hulking guy uh I mean he did slim down a year or two ago but he still like has a reputation of being this big slugger but his power numbers are not like that impressive you know he, he in but he has been consistent 2017 he's like 467 2018 he's like 467 um it's 2019 where he actually the power took a jump up although the opp took a hit but he he's like 531 so if you want it like the fact that he's only slugged over 500 once in his career is always what's kind of given me pause about him but on a one-year deal there is like him the idea of him hitting like 35 homers with a 350 opp is like totally within the realm of possibilities He's another one of those guys I kind of throw out his weird 2020 just because it was like, you know, 59 games. So a nice little maneuver for the uh, for the Nats who are like keeping themselves, maybe not keeping the pace with what the Mets have done, but like they're certainly within the conversation of like National League playoff contenders. Well, I think that's that's true if I knew what the playoffs were going to look like. You know, like they're, I think pretty clearly the third best team in that division, right? Like they're behind the Mets and Nationals and a lot further ahead of both the Marlins and Phillies, right? Like, I don't know if there's, aside from like picking the Dodgers first in the West, I'm not sure if there's going to be an easier combination of like team and division spot than Nationals third. <laughs> I don't see much anybody can do to change that. But I, yeah, I don't know if it's like the way the playoffs were before. Well, then you've got the Braves and or Mets, whoever doesn't win that division and the Dodgers and or Padres, whoever doesn't win that division, there's your two wild cards. And the Nationals are left out. If it's like we had last year, then yeah, the Nationals have a good shot. It's it's hard to know how to prepare if you don't actually know what it's all going to look like. But you know, but either you way, know, they're going to be good. They're going to be competitive. Yeah, that's that, that's that's all I'm saying. Like even if you go by the the sort of the the two wild court format that we've come accustomed to, not the 2020 format, expanded format, there they'd be. I still think they'd be in a team in the conversation for um, sure. at least for a wild card spot. And who know you know who knows? I mean, they're pitching the, the top three of the rotation is so good that like they're you know it's they could be they could be more than that and i wouldn't be surprised if they make a couple other you know like moves along the lines of forward that are like not like huge splashes but just like imp- imp- improve them you know and that 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 matters 
well, they won't do this, but an amazing, amazing fit there would be DJ LeMahieu, right? They don't really have a, a second baseman right now. He'd be absolutely perfect, um, but maybe they'll do more of like a Tommy LaStella. All right, let's move on to our third thing. It's been sort of surprising to me how much talk there's been about Andrew Benatendi over the last couple of days. Our friend and colleague, Mark Feinsand, I'm going to read one of his tweets from yesterday here. Rival executive familiar with the Red Sox is thinking, thinking said he would be shocked if Andrew Benatendi wasn't traded before the end of the weekend. Um, That's pretty telling. But then I also read Alex Spear in the Boston Globe, and I'm going to quote him too. Executives of three teams that have discussed the 26 outfielder with the Red Sox came with three different impressions. One thought they were merely gauging his value without necessarily being committed to dealing him. One thought the Red Sox were actively looking to trade him, and one thought discussions fell somewhere in between. Well, nobody knows anything, I guess, at some point. Uh, Sean McAdam of the Boston Sports Journal also reported the Astros, A's, and Rangers have all been in touch with the Red Sox about Benatendi. There's kind of a lot to unpack here. Um, part of it is, you know, what are the Red Sox planning to do after a disastrous season? But I think it's mostly what kind of player is Andrew Benatendi? I remember how hyped he was, like super duper hyped when he first came up and they were going to have this like super outfield with Betts and Bradley Jr. And, you know, he's had good years, like in 2018, he had a 123 OPS plus, 41 doubles and 16 homers. Uh, but over his career, he's been basically a league average hitter, right? At 107 OPS plus. I'm, I'm willing for him to just completely ignore 2020 because yes, he was terrible, but he also only took 52 plate appearances because he hurt his ribs. So I don't I don't know what to make of him. I don't think he's ever going to reach that stardom people thought, but I also don't know why the Red Sox would trade him now when A, his value has to be as low as it's ever going to be. And B, their outfield right now is him and left, Verdugo in center, Hunter Renfro in right, and the backups are what, like, Michael Chavis and JD Martinez, like they need to probably add another outfielder, not trade one. The, the whole thing is confusing to me. I think. Yeah, I don't. I, I've never been a big Ben, big Benintendi guy. I've just never, I never really saw what the hype was about. To be honest with you, um, just to kind of, he's a, he's a, he's a fine player, but he's really he only has the one standout year. The rest of his career has been pretty consistently like okay, um, and just not you know in line with the kind of hype he had when he was. You know, he was in draft. He was like the college player of the year, and he was, you know, a, a top ten draft pick. And um, but he's he's fine. And so that's what kind of in some ways, if the if the Red Sox are actively looking to trade him, like to me, that's a big red flag. They, yes, that, that suggests to me they look at him the same way. <laughs> yes, that they're trying to capitalize on some of that like 2018 shine before it really falls off. Um, so um, I. I don't really see what what the what the urgency is because also he's, he's just I mean he's not like that expensive yet you know he's like what is he he's going to is like his uh two more uh, years before free agency so it's it's not like he's getting a huge going to get a huge number in um uh he actually didn't he, he signed a, a deal he signed like a not an extension but he he's going to make six point six million this year which is like and then he's going to be eligible for arbitration after this year I I guess I just don't. I, I sort of feel like they're going to go around and be like, oh, maybe it's not worth trading him because I'm not sure we're going to get that, get that, get that much for him. Yeah, I get it. If you're one of these other teams, like the Astros, outside of Kyle Tucker, don't have an outfield. You know, the Rangers are at a position where they just need to try to find talent anywhere they can. So if you're one of those teams and you think, okay, well, if I can get like a youngish league averageish hitter and it's not going to cost me that much, great, like absolutely wonderful. But I don't get it for the Red Sox just because you know you're not going to. I wouldn't think get. Uh, like a top starting pitcher for him, which is what they really need. And even if you toss out 2020, which I'm more than willing to do, I've been fascinated with him for a while in terms of he's still young, 
but his speed has totally collapsed. You know, so we can measure this now with Sackcast. We measure sprint speed. And instead of giving you the raw sprint speed numbers, I'm going to give you his percentile rank. So in 2016, he was in the 89th percentile, right? He was faster than 89% of other players in baseball. And the next year that fell to the 80th percentile. And the next year that fell to the 67th percentile. And the next year that fell to the 54th percentile. And last year, the 43rd percentile, even if you want to toss that out, that was a pretty stark drop. And if we know anything about youth and speed, that doesn't rebound. You know, I don't think that makes him bad. I don't think you need to be an elite Byron Buxton speedster to play the outfield, but it certainly gives me pause because I, I think you're right. Like if he's not fast and if he's, you know, it's hard to know what kind of defender he is because the green monster kind of screws up everything and he's an average-ish hitter. Well, what kind of value does he have? But then also if the Red Sox lose him, who's playing the outfield? The, the whole thing is nuts to me. And I, I kind of feel like maybe he'll get traded and the return will be disappointing, but then the Red Sox don't have an outfield. And I wish I had a hotter take on this, to be honest, but I'm just sort of there. Last thing I'll say is I think the speed element for him is actually important because in that career year of his, that 2018 season, when he was uh, over four four wins above replacement, he's never come close to that since, he was 21 for 24 in stolen bases. Like, that matters. That, was, that, that, that wasn't like a, that's like, that's a notable portion of that. That's, a, that's like, that's a real value that like, is, if it's no longer there, um, that's that changes him as a player. If like the speed component is gone, he's a different player. Yeah. I mean, listen, if they trade him for a pitcher and then they go sign Eddie Rosario or Brantley or somebody like fine, I just I don't think that's what would end up happening. So um, I'm interested to see how this plays out, because the, the amount of discussion around him recently is maybe not commensurate to how I view him as a ball player. We will take another quick break and we will be back to talk about some interesting free agents and our purpose pitches. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you, based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers, as we do each week, we're each going to focus on a free agent that we should be talking more about. My guy is Trevor Rosenthal. And man, I don't know if I can think of many players who have had a more up and down career than Trevor Rosenthal for six years from 2012 to 2017 with the Cardinals, the star, the closer for a lot of that time, a 299 ERA, 12 strikeouts per nine, and then he got hurt. Blew out his elbow, missed 2018 with Tommy John surgery, and 29 was, to put it flatly, 2019, excuse me, uh, a total disaster. Tried to come back with the Nationals. 15 walks in six and a third innings, he got cut. Went to the Tigers. 11 walks in nine innings, he got cut. Signed with the Yankees AAA team, three walks in one game, and that was it. And so I sort of figured, well, that stinks. I really liked watching him pitch, but it sounds like that might be that. 
And then in 2020, he signs with the Royals and he was really good. 21 strikeouts against seven walks and got traded to the Padres. 17 strikeouts, one walk, zero earned runs, 97 miles an hour on his fastball. We just talked in regards to Ben Attendee, Schwarber, and a bunch of other players, how much we're ignoring 2020 for a lot of these guys. And then you have a guy like Rosenthal, who maybe has completely renewed his career. You know, he looks like the guy he was in St. Louis. He looked better than the guy he was in St. Louis because he only is 30 years old. He turns 31 in May. And I think the incredibly inconsistent, you know, recent track record is going to prevent him from getting a big, long deal. But he looked so good for the Padres that I think someone's going to sign him to a year or maybe a two-year deal. And he is going to be really impressive. It's a it's an incredibly fascinating turnaround for a guy who had been at one point one of the best closers in baseball. And I think when when judging twenty twenty, it's way easier to sort of to judge a pitcher because um, you can there's there's like real indicators that can tell you a lot more whether it's velocity, you know, whiff rate, you know, you can, you can look at the you know, if, and teams I'm sure dig deeper on like their spin rates, their spin directions, all that stuff. So like it's much easier with a pitcher, even in a tiny sample size, I think especially a relief pitcher to sort of like to, to suss out, okay, how much of this is, is real. And when you look at the available relief pitchers out there, now that, you know, Hendricks appears to, is, is, has appeared to have agreed to a deal. It's a lot of guys like this, where it's like guys with, you know, big names who are like once famous closers, but maybe have a little bit of like, there's some mark against them, like Kirby Yates, like which Kirby Yates are we getting, you know, which Archie Bradley are we getting? So it's, it's um, I think that I agree with you. Like he Rosenthal probably has as much upside as any of those folks. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what kind of deal he gets relative to some of the, um, the, uh, the other, the other relievers available. Um, my uh, free agent we should be talking more about is more of a player that I just like, like, and I think is good. Although he's a little bit more of a, he's sort of a, a tougher kind of roster fit. And that's Adam Duvall. Um, what, what I've always liked about Adam Duvall is he's sort of like, runs against a lot of stereotypes because he's a left fielder by trade and he has never looked the part of a, like, you know, an above average outfielder, but he is, um, he's been above average or above and outs above average in every year of his career. And in some years has like rated among the best defensive left fielders in baseball. Um, he rakes against lefties as a right-handed hitter, um, career 801 OPS against lefties. And he's been really consistent the last few years with ex- expected weight on base each year between 321 and 324. So basically identical in each of the last three seasons. Granted, there's, there's been some injury-shortened campaigns in there. So I just think that like he's sort of he's a little bit of a different kind of player. And unfortunately for him, he, he's, because he's a right-handed hitter, he's tougher to place as a platoon because he's like sort of the short side of a platoon. But he's entering his age 32 season. He's not that old. Um, I just like him as a player. I'm curious to see where he lands. He's you know, he when he first came up with the Reds, it looked like he was just a pure slugger. It almost seems like they were the, the inverse of what you get with catchers, where it was like, oh, he's a slugger, so therefore he's not good at defense. Well, actually, it's like he's probably defense first with some power, and um, he played well for the Braves the last couple of years, and then going to the um, with them going to the playoffs. And I'm very curious to see where he ends up this winter. He had two, three home run games. In the span of a week, he did it on September 2nd against the Red Sox. I mean, I also feel like you and I and all of our kids had three or home run games against the Red Sox pitching last year. And he did it on September 9th against the Marlins. And not only do I agree with everything you say here, when I saw that this is who you were going to talk about, I actually had to go back through our document to make sure that neither of us had already talked about him. Because I (laughs) feel like he's a guy we have talked about before because I agree with everything you said. I I think he is a a reasonably useful guy. We are going to end with our 
purpose pitch, which is, uh, you know, we sort of pick something to rant about. I'm not sure if mine is a rant, but it is something I want to talk about. I poked the hornet's nest of Cardinals fandom, apparently. Um, I was thinking about, you know, what after the Mets traded for Lindor, I thought, well, the biggest remaining hole is in center field and everybody wants that to be Springer and maybe it will be. But if not him, who will they get to play center field? The only other starting caliber center fielder out there is Jackie Bradley, who's a left-handed hitter and the Mets have a ton of left-handed hitting outfielders. So they need a right-handed hitter. And I thought to myself, well, let's see, who can I think of that's a right-handed hitter who's a very good defender, really fast because the Mets base running has been really abysmal the last couple of years. And not only that, is a local New Yorker when I thought to myself, hey, Harrison Bader would be a great fit. And not only that for the Cardinals, you know, let Tyler O'Neill play more, let Dylan Carlson play more. I don't know what the trade or would actually be, but you know, it doesn't matter. It wouldn't be that much. Anyway, I tweeted that, thought it was interesting. I moved on and I got so many replies from Cardinals fans that were either, I will drive him personally to the airport myself or I would trade him for two slices of genuine New York pizza is what I, I heard from people. And I was kind of stunned by that. And um, I think it kind of comes down to a couple of things. I think one of it, one of the things is simply that, you know, old school versus new school stats. He hits 220 and he strikes out a lot. So if you're the kind of baseball fan who thinks that means you can't be a good hitter, then you're not going to like him very much. And I certainly understand that. Hilariously, he also had the third highest OPS on the Cardinals last year. That sort of brings me to the second point. The Cardinals offense is terrible. Paul Goldschmidt is very good. That's about it. And I think you can hide a guy like this, you know, a, a average-ish to below average-ish hitter who's a really good fielder on a team like the Mets where he's, you know, hitting eighth and playing good defense than you can on the Cardinals where they are just desperate for bats. Um, I was also interested at the uh, amount of Cardinals fans who said something along the lines of, when they introduced the baby blue uniforms a couple years ago, Bader was the only player there. And they kind of took that as like pushing him as the next star, which he's not, you know, like Carlson is or Jack Flaherty is. I don't care about such things, but I understand why they thought about it that way. The way I think I can I can most accurately explain this is Harrison Bader is not the solution in St. Louis, but he's also not the problem. He's such a good outfielder and he's like a 10% below average hitter. I can live with that. I, I do wonder if it's so much of it's just like the, the, the Cardinals fans taking out their frustrations of lack of outfield production on him who maybe was sort of looked like he might be the guy. He had a he had that one run, I forget what, I think I can't remember what season it was. Where 18. He hit, where he hit really well for a while, and maybe that sort of like gave people some some false hope. But like it, it makes, it, it what you're saying makes sense. Where like if he were on the Mets in a world like, you know, what would be like, I mean, like is it, is it is, would like Harrison Bader for J.D. Davis be like a trade or for uh, or for Nimmo? I don't even know what the right, what the, what the appropriate. um yeah. I don't know. The other thing I forgot to mention too, and just like in terms of his perception with the Cardinals is what have they done a lot of the last couple of years? Well, they traded away Tommy Pham and they traded away Randy Rosarena and they traded away Luke Voigt and they failed to sign Marcelo Zuna. And so people are like, well, look at all these bats we're giving away, yet we're keeping this guy who strikes out a lot. So I think it's less about Bader himself and more about just like the state of the Cardinals lineup. Speaking of the AL Central, I will close. NL Central. NL Central. <laughs> NL Central, yeah. Um, speaking of the NL Central, I will close um, the show with my purpose pitch, my closing rant, which is to all the teams in the NL Central, basically, which is do something. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Dan Zimborski at Vangraphs uh, did an analysis, and he looked at which teams stand to gain the most in terms of playoff probability if you added five or more wins to their projection. And of all 
30 teams in baseball, the Cubs, Cardinals, and Brewers ranked two, three, and four on that list, which suggests that this division is very much there for the taking. I mean, I didn't really need this analysis to tell me that because the teams are, are clearly similarly uh, talented, but like that really just put it in a very, very uh, clear uh, state for me. I mean, the Cubs are in a weird spot because they, you know, actually might be looking to rebuild and now they're talking about maybe trading Chris Bryant and Wilson Contreras. But assuming they're trying to still try to win this year, they need help in a lot of places and there's a lots of free agents they could sign. The Cardinals have questions in the outfield and lack pitching depth. The Brewers need outfield and bullpen help, perhaps some help, help at catcher. It wouldn't be nice if one of these teams did something and tried to take a step forward in winning this division. You know, you and I were talking about this um, uh, on Slack, and I think you'd said that you'd seen someone say that, like, you know, if the Pirates wanted to get aggressive on one-year deals, they could probably get into the mix. Um, That's how open this division is right now. So it would be nice if um, some of these teams started to get a little bit active and um, tried to do something, you know, to, to, to win the division in 2021. You, you actually undersold it a little bit. So, right? so what you said was that Dan Samborski looked at which teams would gain the most in terms of playoff probability with five more wins, and the Cubs, Cardinals, and Brewers were two, three, four. That's true. The Mets were number one. Uh, the Reds were number six. Right? So like uh, the Pirates don't really have any shot here. But those other four teams, they don't have to do that much to improve to win a winnable division. And uh, certainly I'm not, I'm not blind to the reality of our time where we don't really know what the season's going to look like. And everybody had to go through a season with no fans. And that's all, those are all things that matter for sure. The, the thing I wonder if you look at the NL, clearly the four best teams are at the top of the other two divisions, right? Mets and Braves, Dodgers and Padres. You might actually put the nationals as the fifth best team above anybody in the central. So do you look at it as though you can win the central, you know, not easily, but it's it's reasonable to do, and then you get to the playoffs and you are a massive underdog. And is that is that worth it? I mean, to to me it is. Like you just get to the playoffs. Let's hypothetically take the Cardinals, right? You get there. Um, I view Jack Flaherty as one of the elite aces in baseball. You start him in game one, you win game one, anything can happen at that point. You know, I, I don't think I don't think I expect any of these teams to sign George Springer. But there's going to be so many relievers out there and so many guys in a one year deal. Like, it doesn't take that much to improve to win this division. Somebody, please win this division. <laughs> Somebody, please, just, just try. Um, I, I like this. It's going to be one of these five teams. It might as well be you. <laughs> it might as well be you. Uh, it's going to be one of these four teams. I'm sorry. That's just the truth of it. That is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com Ballpark Connections podcast. Thank you, folks. Thank you.